Hey, podcast listeners, I've got a special offer to share with you. You can get access to all existing and future podcast CEUs for $79 subscription for a year. And because you're amazing, you can use my code SUP20 and get $20 off. A year's access to all podcast CEUs for $59. Check out the details at speechtherapypd.com and use my code SUP20. Let's learn about a wearable device called the Speech Vibe for people with Parkinson's that increases the volume of their speech by capitalizing on the Lombard effect. What's the Lombard effect? I'm glad you asked. It's the involuntary tendency of speakers to increase their vocal effort when speaking in loud noise to enhance the audibility of their voice. This change includes not only loudness, but other acoustic features, such as pitch, rate, and duration of syllables. The Speech Vibe was created by Dr. Jessica Hoover, who is my guest today. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. And now let's get into our topic and hear from Jessica. Well, hello. How are you doing today, Jessica? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I am really excited to sit down with an inventor. This is so thrilling. Well, I'm excited to be here. I hope I uh, live up to the excitement. I mean, really, it's just so cool, though. You had an idea and you brought it to fruition. That's incredible. And that's what we're going to talk about today is your invention. Um, So I don't want to steal any thunder. So I'm going to let you like unleash that on everybody. So go ahead and start by giving um, a little background about yourself and how you got to become an inventor. I'm just, I'm going to say inventor like five more times, just so you know. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So um, originally I went to school to be a speech pathologist, like we all do. Um, And I started working with a a faculty member. I went to the University of Buffalo and I started working with a faculty member, Elaine Stathopoulos, and we were looking at speech physiology and respiratory function. And I loved it and decided to do a PhD. Um, And in my PhD, I got really interested in um, Parkinson's disease. And when I got my faculty job at Purdue, I started working with people with Parkinson's disease. And my first grant was looking at how do we make, one of the major ways that we um, treat these patients is that we are um, giving them cues to talk louder, you know, or slower or, and what I was interested in is, um, basically we thought the respiratory system, it's a dumb pump. It provides the pressure and that's what it's doing. I wondered if it mattered how we cued people, if that changed the way they use their system to respond. And I started looking at, um, older adults, young adults, and people with Parkinson's disease, um, looking at different cues to get louder. One of those just a noise cue. Um, So it's multi-talker babble, uh, elicits a Lombard effect. We all have had this happen to us. If we ever went out to dinner and um, you notice after dinner, you're really tired, your throat is tired, you know, because you've been talking louder and you don't even feel it. You just do it. It's automatic. And 
Um, of course, the patients still have this reflex. They still respond. Um, and I thought, you know, they really responded better. They were um, my other two cues. One was a cue, a visual cue. So they saw a sound level meter and they had to target a certain loudness. And the other was the traditional be twice as loud as you are at comfortable cue. And I found that they were not only louder in noise, but their respiratory system acted more normally when they were talking in noise. It looked more like the typical older adults. And so I really felt that that was something special. It was automatic. They rated it as less effortful than the other two cues. Um, and so we, I thought it'd be really neat if we could somehow elicit this Lombard effect while they're communicating, but not make them have to talk in actual noise, which would reduce their audibility. And so that's where the speech vibe came from. It's basically a little bit of noise that's voice activated, plays in the ear only when they're talking, and it just elicits a slumbered effect and they're automatically louder. Okay. Yeah, it's a very simple, straightforward idea, but I bet it is. bringing it to life wasn't quite such a straight shot. <laughs> Well, I was really naive. The first thing I did was try to buy it on the market. Like somebody's made this. This is not, you know, this isn't hard. Somebody's built this. Of course, I couldn't find it. So then we went to inventing it, and it 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 was it was it's come a long way. The early devices were early prototype devices. The first grant was done with kind of a box that was belt worn and had strap, you know, like a a cord up to the neck where the accelerometer was and a tube to the ear for the fitting. And now we've got it all in one behind the ear, kind of looks like a Bluetooth device. Um, and that took, that was an easy, um, probably the hardest, there have been some technological challenges. And then on the, on the speech side, it's really hard to bring a new technology to market. Um, speech pathologists are, um, and I, I'm like this too. We all want to know what is the literature, but it's really hard even with literature to break into the market with something new. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's slow going. Cause I guess, do you think it's part of like a suspicion of something new? And then of course our first instinct is like you mentioned, well, what does the literature say about this? But when something new, you know, the only one probably doing the research on it is the creator of it. And so then people are like, well, it's biased because it's your baby. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we see that, but it's interesting. More people are, all of our studies have been multi-site just because I've worried about that. I've worried that maybe I can make it work, but I want, I mean, I'm not going to see every patient. So everybody else has to be able to make it work. So that's been a focus as we've been studying it to be sure that we had multi-site clinical trials that where people were collecting data away from me. And I'm certainly in favor of more studies that even don't involve me. I think that would be great. So, yeah. And I, I, I love that our speech pathologists ask us, what's the literature say? I think that's awesome. Um, it's and I'm glad that we have something to tell them, but I think uh, I think it says a lot about our field that that's their first response. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Makes my little heart proud. That's been beaten into me regularly, so. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, good. All right, so in a nutshell, the Speech 5 is a wearable device that a person with Parkinson's would wear all the time during mm -hmm. like outings, 
they can wear it at any point where they're going to be, it could be an outing. It could, they, maybe they have people over or just want to talk to their spouse. You know, really it can be worn any uh, time of day. Obviously we like it to be worn in communicative environments. Um, with the speech five, if you aren't talking, you're not getting any kind of benefit. And so we like to see people use it regularly. We've had some patients who haven't needed to continue to use it to see benefits. And then we have some patients that really never learn to be louder, but they continue to respond to the device. Oh, okay. So is there like a, ooh, I don't, I feel like there's a special term for it. So in that description, you mentioned um, a patient or patients who have worn it for a period of time their volume has increased, they've stopped wearing the device, and they've maintained that loudness without the device. Right. Now, not for a year, you know, it's a degenerative disease, but they've maintained it for a period of time. And some can do like little tune-ups, so they'll do it, you know, wear it a day and then have a couple days off and be fine. Or I had one patient who wore it in the morning and did some vocal exercises in the morning and then didn't need it for the rest of the day, but by the next morning he needed it again. And I have some patients that really should be wearing it whenever they want to communicate. Oh, okay. I really like that variability because I, I guess in my very narrow understanding of it, it was like, okay, this is something you have to wear all the time, <laughs> but it, yeah. it depends. It's very much a case by case basis. And so whatever suits the patient and their needs. And then of course, as you mentioned, as the disease progresses, you'll have to revisit that and, and maybe change how you're utilizing it. Exactly. Yep. And that's, that's what I like about it is that a patient might need it every day now, but they have it. So in a year when they do need it every day, they can put it on, you know, it's not, um, it's not a technology that, you know, as long as you use it, you can get a benefit. Okay, very nice. Um, okay, so then at night, they can take it out and put it onto a charger, like a little box and charge it overnight, and then it's good to go the next day. Correct, yep. It gets around six hours. If they were to talk continuously for six hours, they would need to charge it that day, but most of our patients aren't talking six hours a day, um, and so that seems to work, but we do ask them to charge it every night for two reasons. First, we think it needs to be charged. And second, um, we were we learned through development that really you should protect um, devices that go in the ear because earwax can be attractive to pets. And so this also keeps it away from kids and pets and it's just a little rechargeable safety case. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I never kind of considered that. When I saw the case, I was like, well, that's just nice. But no, it serves a purpose and a function. It's to protect the device from uh, curious pets and children. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I and we also chose the rechargeable because um, I, I know how hard it is to change those little batteries. Um, and I think with a tremor, that gets worse. And I also just felt it was more... We wanted to be more environmentally responsible by having these, instead of throwing all these batteries away, doing some recharging. Awesome. That's excellent. Well, thank you for making my little environmental heart even happier now. <laughs> oh, yay. Um, so in your decision to go with rechargeable batteries versus uh, disposable batteries, did that increase the cost of the unit? Not appreciably where I felt it would block someone's access to it. 
that, that would be so much more expensive, um, particularly when you factor in the need to buy non-rechargeable batteries. Exactly. Okay. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, while we're on the topic of cost, I hope we're not jumping ahead too far, but um, how do patients get access to this? Is something they can they can just order online or will insurance cover it or what's what's out there for folks? Sure. So there's several ways to get the device. Um, probably the um, best way is if you if there's a speech pathologist in your area who um, can trial a speech five, can give you a speech five to try. Um, so basically you come into the office, they would try it on you. Um, and if it works for you, then they would um, help you order one. You order the device from the company, from speech five incorporated. So you, you buy the device from the company. And um, if you're working with a speech pathologist, we can send that device to your speech pathologist for setting. Or if your speech pathologist knows the settings that they want the device, because we set it individually for every patient, um, we can actually ship it to the patient with the settings already programmed. And that's what we do for the Veterans Administration. So the VA covers the device for all. Um, we're on the formulary in the VA, they cover it for veterans. And they test them, get the settings, put it in the order that they send to us, and we ship it to the patient with the settings all set. Um, of course, we can also ship it to the speech pathologist to make the settings, uh, devise the settings when the patient gets there. We can also, um, if a patient does not have a speech pathologist who's willing to do this close to them, we can also uh, ship them the device and we've developed telemedicine software. So we can actually set the device over the internet. So we can have um, a technician with the company set the device for them, but then we still want them to have a relationship with a speech pathologist. So we're trying to really, um, I guess I, we're trying very hard to make patients aware of speech pathology and the benefits of, you know, the speech five isn't a substitute for having a speech pathologist. You still need a speech pathologist um, for many things. Uh, including speech, you know, you can, so what's nice about the speech five is it can be coupled with any therapy. So you could be using it for, with voice therapy, with um, cognitive therapy, rate therapy, um, swallowing therapy. So we've seen it combined in those ways in clinical practice already. And I, I think that's the, what's really nice is you get away from a model of the whole therapy time is focused focused on voice and speech to maybe only part is focused on that and other parts of the disease get um, some attention. Okay, good. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so who are best candidates? I mean, obviously this device is created for people with Parkinson's disease and um, anybody outside of that would benefit for it? Or um, what about candidates who may not be a good fit for it. What have you guys come across? So yeah, there, this is a really good question and it's one that we're still studying. So we've really only run across all our clinical trials about 130 patients with the speech vibe. Um, and that's been in several clinical trials. But so I can't tell you, I think I'll need several hundred patients to really parcel out all of these factors, or maybe that's even an underestimate. Um, but 
What we do know is, of course, they need to have voicing. So if they're a patient that is aphonic, the device won't trigger. So it ha they have to have voicing. And we've had a few patients really push to have it, even though we've told them, if you're aphonic, it's not gonna work for you. They've pushed and those are, um, we rarely get devices back, but they're, when we do get them back, that's one of the types of patients that we have it come back when they really, we said, you're not a great candidate, but they still wanted it. And we have a very 60-day um, return policy, so it gives them a chance to try it out if they really want to. Um, so that's number one, they have to be, they have to have voicing. Um, number two, I really think um, we're looking, we want to parcel out who is likely to do well with a behavioral therapy, who can adapt what they're doing, remember what they're doing. Um, maybe they don't need the speech five, maybe they don't want to do therapy, then the speech five becomes a better option. But when you have these patients who are in more uh, moderate stages and they're not able to carry therapy as well forward into their everyday life, then I think this starts to become a much more um, viable option if they're open to wearing a device. So some, that's another criterion, ask them, do they like, do they mind wearing it? Do they feel okay with that? Um, show it to them, let them um, see what it looks like. Um, I think that's important. We have not seen that uh, cognition doesn't seem to matter, although cognition impacts their independence with it. So people with more cognitive impairments need someone who can put it on them because they can't remember to do that or remember how to do that, um, but they can still benefit. Um, and we've even um, had good success with people with um, PSP or MSA, some of those Parkinson's plus syndromes. Outside of that, if we're talking about other kinds of patients, we haven't studied them, and I'm so I can't give any evidence-based reason to use it with another population. What I will say is I really don't like to have people use it with children. Uh, it's totally untested in children. Children, um, while we know in adults this doesn't impact their hearing, so we studied uh, change to hearing in um, over 40 patients in our first clinical trial, and there was no change. But in kids, uh, it feels less sure to me, and I, I guess I would that would be one population that's a no-go for us. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to say other populations without any data. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> that was really enlightening. I appreciate that. That was very much a capsule of like who would benefit from it and who wouldn't. And so um, I do like how you mentioned that, you know, Patients will be like, I want to try this. And you're like, it may, you may not get the full benefits from it, but sometimes they do. They just need to try to know that they've explored all the options. And I think that helps patients feel like they have more control over what's going on with them, that they've tried every avenue and then they can see, okay, yep, maybe you're right. <laughs> it's not yep. a fit, but um, yeah. So and we're not, we're not 100% correct. So I certainly don't want to say, no, you can't have it. And if the speech pathologist wants to try it, we are not going to interfere. Speech pathologists know best um, their patients. And But when a patient calls, we do try to run them through the likely things that would mean that it wouldn't work for them. Okay. Um, now, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, like, what's the SLP's role in the speech five? 
and um, how can it be used with other therapy techniques? And so you did, you, you talked about how when they're wearing the speech vibe, that can improve their ability to participate in other types of therapy. Like maybe they're also doing dysphagia therapy or cognition mm-hmm. therapy. Um, so I guess also what I was thinking about was, you know, once they wear it and they're getting louder, then maybe they don't really need to do any more behavioral therapy techniques for loudness. What are your thoughts? Uh, the SLP's role is, of course, broad. Um, so one thing is they would need to identify people who would be candidates who they'd like to try it with. Um, and of course, counsel patients about this technique and other techniques to treat them. Um, they also set the device. If, if they're one of the people who uses, you know, they have the software and they have a device, they can set the device, get the device settings for the patient. That takes five to 10 minutes to set the device for the patient kind of stepping through our software. Um, and they may need to reset it. So as a patient gets better or if they have a decline, you know, often you'll have that patient who has a lung infection and you see a big hit in their voice or their speech post infection, you might need to change the settings on the device to help them. We never want with the device, we're always setting it um, about three to five. We're trying to get them to talk about three to five dB above their comfortable loudness when we're setting the device. Um, So as they get louder, we might want to adjust the settings um, to maintain that bump. Um, or if they have a big hit, we might want to turn it back a little bit to not overtax them. Uh, the idea that we have with the speech drive is that we're going to move people up slowly, keep training them continuously in their everyday communication life, but not overtax the system. So bump their uh, loudness up slowly. And over time, we see um, improvements in rate. So in over 60% of our patients, their rate became more normal um, after eight weeks using the device. We see some physiologic changes that maintain after people stop using the device, showing that the system, respiratory and laryngeal systems are functioning more supportively. So there is something, uh, there are some benefits to longer term use um, of the device. And um, so, I think the speech pathologist needs to manage those changes that are happening with their voice and manage the how the therapy is kind of dovetailing with what's happening. And so um, some of the, we did a very small study with Teachers College Columbia where they, um, I, I wasn't involved in data collection, but um, they had the speech vibe and they did an 30 minutes of telemedicine therapy every week for six weeks. And we looked at pre-post changes and the telemedicine therapy was focused on the person. So they didn't do so much loudness therapy, but they did some uh, clear speech therapy, rate therapy, other kinds of speech therapy. And um, no, but they also didn't do like LSVT loud or those kinds of things. And they watched, they looked at how that improved their speech. And we definitely saw some, uh, amplification of the responses to the speech vibe or um, maybe some uh, like collaborative changes. So the speech vibe was changing their rate a little bit and the therapy was changing their rate. Or so they were getting benefit out of combining those two things. So I don't think 
we have to give up doing speech therapy if they have the like if they have the speech five we just check that off we can still work on honing their speech um, but of course there they have a lot of issues that need attention swallowing in particular is the one that i worry about and cognition is really important too and is critical to their quality of life and so having a little time in that session um, particularly in this managed care uh, situation where we're we're limited on visits and we're limited on time and we're all overbooked and it gives us a, a little more latitude to target other areas. Yeah, awesome. That is excellent. So I think you touched on this briefly at the very beginning as well, um, but I want to talk about the origin of the speech vibe and how you came up with the idea. Because um, the speech vibe has been around for a little bit now actually yep. like tell me let's go back in time tell me the year that you came up with the idea so i came up with the idea in 2006 so that was a while ago and i was looking at my data from the grant where i was looking at how to make how do people respond to different cues to get louder and i was just really struck with how well the noise cue worked with the patients. And um, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine about what I was thinking about. And I said, but you know, there's not a device on the market and I could never make a device. So I just don't know what to do. And he said to me, why couldn't you make the device? Find an engineer and build the device. And so I thought, well, that's pretty solid advice. And so I <laughs> found an engineer, happened to be, uh, Purdue is a big engineering school. We're very um, strong engineering programs and we have a great biomedical engineering department here. And so I partnered with some um, engineers in that department who basically built the device inside the biomedical engineering department. I mean, we did a small um, test, uh, which we built out of junk we found in the, in the um, shop in my department in speech language and hearing sciences. It was very clunky, but it worked. It got us some pilot data. We wrote a grant and the grant got funded and we developed the first prototype device. And then, um, so it was really something that came out of my work. Awesome. I, I feel like that's so inspiring. Like the research you were doing fed into this concept and then then you were able to do research on this concept and submit a grant and have a grant fund the beginning of this tool that we can use to assist people. So mm -hmm. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, dollars <laughs> at work. Yay. Like that, that direct application is just really thrilling, right? Because sometimes in our field, it's so hard to see actual tangible things, you mm -hmm. know? And so it's just, it's really exciting to see that happen. I yeah. hope other people get little little seeds growing. <laughs> and I think, I think they're even mulling over. Maybe they just need to go find an engineer and make it happen. That's right. And I think a lot of our, our I'm seeing more of this in our field. I feel like speech pathologists are very entrepreneurial and innovative. And so of course we're coming up with these solutions. And I think I love seeing more and more we're just empowered to to do it. Boy, we can do it. And I like that. I love the new technologies coming out in our field. Yes. All right. Now, what was the process that you went through to bring the Speech 5 to life? Um, how do you make it market ready? Oh, yeah. So 
um, the first step was to make it uh, have it have a footprint that people might accept in the market. And so for that, we worked with an industrial engineer um, who also we we ran focus groups with people with Parkinson's disease. We consulted over 50 of them to find out what they would like it to look like, how big it was. And the engineer is really helpful. He's, you know, he suggested that we buy some off the shelf things and have them play around with them so they could see what it was to manipulate different size devices. And so we did that, came up with the footprint we have now. And then it was figuring out how to sense the voice. We knew we wanted to use an accelerometer, not a microphone. And but figuring out if we we're going to put it on the ear, where on the head do you sense the voice? Well, I thought you sense it from the temporal bone, you know, of course, because I had had hearing science. Well, it turns out that's great inside your head. It's not so good outside your head. So we looked around the neck, the head, and came up with the ear. So we actually have the accelerometer in the earpiece, and then we needed to shield the accelerometer from the speaker, which is also in the earpiece, you know, because the speaker is providing the noise. Um, and so we problem solved that. There was a lot of firmware, software kind of things. Um, the first time we went to market, we had a very kind of a beta. It was a beta release, small release. Uh, we needed, the software wasn't terribly um, user-friendly. And one of the big changes we had is about uh, is the development of the current software that we have now, which we worked with a software firm to, to develop. And it's, it's very clean, it's easy, it steps you through the process, gives you lots of um, good outcome measures. So you get fundamental frequency, you get their sound pressure level without the device, sound pressure level with the device, things that you can put into reports that are you know, objective measures. And so, um, that was a big step. Um, and then it's moving slowly now, moving from smaller manufacturing to larger manufacturing. We are lucky to get a manufacturing partner in Indianapolis. Um, so the device is completely made in the state of Indiana um, and the software engineers were from West Lafayette, Indiana, where I'm located. Um, they were a little spin out from the university and um, so it's been really neat seeing, working with other small businesses to make this a reality. Yeah. Oh, I've got all the happy feels. That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. All right. Um, okay. So now I was thinking about going into some of the current or the past, the current and the ongoing research involving the speech vibe. And okay. maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the work that you guys are doing in the um, Huber Motor Speech Laboratory. Sure. Um, we are, so we had our first, that first study that I told you about, that first grant, we did kind of a large, um, relative, it's not large relative to like a medical trial, but large for our speech trials. It was a, um, we had 45 people enrolled and um, 39 of them completed a um, eight week study with four weeks of follow-up. Um, and we also got some data longitudinal that's gonna be coming out soon here. We're getting it ready for submission. So we followed them for six weeks wearing the device. I was really concerned early on that um, they would adapt to it and stop responding, um, but they don't seem to adapt to this uh, device very much. They seem to, they continue to respond to the device. We even have had a few patients that I 
have known for years who were part of the first study and still use this B5 and still respond. So, you know, that's 10 years now. So that's good. Um, so then next we tried to, we kind of changed the footprint, built the new device. We had to test to make sure that device works like it should. Um, and so that was an, the next study. And then from there, we've been thinking about ways to combine it with other therapies to study who is best for it, like who does it work best for, and um, how to decide candidacy, dosage, those kinds of things. And so we have um, a study with uh, Michelle Trucci at, uh, at Teachers College Columbia. And she's the one that we worked with when her lab did the study, a uh, small n 10 subject study looking at if you couple it with another kind of therapy that I talked about earlier. But they're also working with us on a study. We've been having patients use the expiratory muscle strength training device, EMSD 150, coupled with the speech five. And we're trying to look at changes to speech, but also cough. So since we saw changes to how the respiratory system was coordinated um, as a part of our first study. Uh, we, and uh, we also found uh, better vocal full closure at, after eight weeks in that first study. We thought there might be some improvement with cough. We thought there might be a boost with doing some respiratory strengthening. We know that the respiratory and laryngeal system. So we were hoping they would have a synergistic effect. And that data is, we've closed enrollment and finished collecting the data and we're measuring uh, right now. Um, we started with the cough data because that's kind of new, but we'll get the speech data done as well. And we have a study with um, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Kelly Richardson, Kelly Richardson is the PI on that. And uh, we're also working with Angela Roberts at Northwestern on that study. And we're looking at how uh, no therapy compared to speech five therapy compared to LSVT loud. How does that impact how the system works and the, the outcomes of therapy for these patients? Um, that one is still ongoing. And um, as you might imagine in my laboratory, when we study the speech five, um, and hopefully in all laboratories, we're blinding. So I, and I'm actually very blind. I can't, I could, I don't know any of my blinding codes. I can't look at preliminary data just because of um, the issues of me being the inventor. And so I, I know we're collecting the data on that. We're about halfway through that grant. And so um, I can't give results on that yet, but that's, that's ongoing right now in the laboratory. We also, like I said, developed this telemedicine platform. So we did a pretty large study that we're uh, just getting close to finishing the data measurement on. We ran 30 patients through using the speech five via telemedicine and 30 face-to-face. -face. And we'll be looking at, we're interested in the difference in whether it works, telemedicine. Um, is there a difference in how well it works, but also in caregiver burden, because when you, is it more burdensome to get someone to therapy at an outside institution, or is it harder to set up all the equipment and actually be part of the session? And so that's another primary aim of that study. So that's kind of our, the broad things that we're doing right now with the speech five.
That is awesome. And I love how well-rounded they all are and how unique they're they're None of them are honestly looking at the same thing. Like that last one you mentioned is looking at the applicability of like telehealth and does that decrease or increase caregiver burden and access in that way? Because maybe they don't have access because they can't get out to an outpatient facility. So I love that. Oh, that's such a good thing to study. (laughs) That was actually because we kept getting calls from patients who, you know, I live in the middle of South Dakota and my closest speech pathologist just three hours away. Can I get this? Well, yeah, but I don't know what that, you know, like how do we, there has to be a better bridge to those patients. They can't just get a speech vibe and then we expect that's it. They, they need other kinds of therapy. They need a speech pathologist to oversee their care in admission and speech and swallowing. And so I was trying to think of a way that we could provide more to the patient than just a device. So yes. yeah. We, awesome. just need, we need, we need a Medicare to cover telemedicine for speech therapy everywhere. Then yeah. really come full circle. That will be helpful. (laughs) Um, Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I forgot to say this when we were talking about how a person gets a device. Um, Medicare made me think of this. We um, do do, uh, like a person can just pay cash for the speech vibe, obviously. You can buy it. You can buy it in installments. But we also have started submitting Medicare claims and private insurance claims um, this year, just a couple of months ago, and um, we've already had three of those claims paid. So there, we believe that this is moving in the direction that eventually that will be much easier. That's so good. I would love for tools like this to become part of DME, durable medical equipment, mm-hmm. uh, because right now we have zero for speech and language pathology, right? Like our patients, it's either out of pocket or maybe it's covered by insurance, maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. But when it's appropriate, like they need it just as much as they may need a walker or a cane or a wheelchair or an AFO or whatever else it is, PT and OT are handing out mm-hmm. these days. So, yay. Let's see more That's of that. That's the argument we're making. We're using your argument. <laughs> yes. It's a good one. It's solid. It's super solid. It's sure to win. <laughs> All right. I had a question about one of the... Um, research studies that are ongoing where you mentioned three groups. There was a control group who's receiving no intervention. Mm-hmm. Then you have the LSVT group who's only receiving LSVT. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the speech vibe group who's just receiving speech vibe. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is something that I've come across just in research studies in general, that oftentimes there's a dilemma with having a control group that's not getting any intervention, right? Because they're like... Yeah. Is that ethical? Is that, uh, how can that be helpful, right? Okay, so tell me more about that. Well, how are you guys dealing with that, I guess? When you're doing human subjects research, you have to have it approved by an institutional review board for human subjects work. I don't know about every one of them cross country, but the basic um, recommendation is that if you have someone who's in a control group, who has a disorder that could be treated that you provide, you offer some kind of treatment after the end of the control group. And that's how we've been handling that. So 
treatment, they go without treatment for a period, then we transition them either to another study that's looking at treatment or we connect them with speech pathology to get a treatment. So they're never, we just don't study their treatment period. We study their um, control period. Okay. All right. Okay. That makes sense. That's a great way to accommodate that and still have a control group, which is so important because I love research, but sometimes when it's just, when it's two groups that are both receiving a type of therapy with or without an element that they're looking at still, then you, we want to know that the treatment period is working versus not getting anything. Right. I'm so really glad you guys have a control group. Thank you. <laughs> Another way to do that, that um, I've used is a delayed group. So you have a group that gets nothing for eight weeks, say, and then gets treatment for eight weeks. And then another group that doesn't have the delay, they just get the treatment. So then you get the natural history of that first eight weeks. I've seen people do that on the back end too. So they'll have a group that gets eight weeks of therapy and then nothing for eight weeks and watch the natural history after. So there's all kinds of ways to do this, but I agree with you. Ethically, we have to provide something to those patients that some kind of therapy. All right, now you are Dean of like research? Associate Dean for Research in the College of Health and Human Science. That sounds really fancy. Tell me what that involves. Like, what are your responsibilities? What does um, the Associate Dean of Research do? Oh, that's a good question. So here's what I think they do. Um, here's what I do. Um, <laughs> my job to support the faculty of my college, their research agendas. So that could be, sometimes that's money, sometimes it's help. Um, connection to other faculty who they need as collaborators, helping them um, find subjects, find someone who can help with um, recruitment or retention, um, grant writing assistance, faculty development, so finding people who want to lead research groups and helping them gain the skills to lead those large interdisciplinary groups that really are the lifeblood of complex, answering complex questions about health. Mm -hmm. um, I also um, try to encourage faculty um, in their research. That's in, an important part of it, particularly junior faculty, making sure they have what they need and they feel like when they need to bounce ideas off someone, someone is there to do that. Um, it's, it's really fun. It's one of the, I like being able to support other faculty, and I love learning about what the faculty are doing. Um, it's really an amazing, amazing job. So um, that would be for more than like the communication disorders program research. This would be mm -hmm. research in what other fields would you be supervising and supporting and facilitating? Yeah, so I'm never really supervising, but more um, so more just providing resources or assistance or advice or connections, whatever that is. And um, so in our college, our, we have a really broad, we're health and human sciences. So we're kind of a broader uh, group of scientists. So it could be uh, someone doing nutrition, work on nutrition or psychology or medical physics, um, imaging, 
techniques. Um, we even have we have a group that looks at consumer behavior and hospitality and tourism and the economics of those things and the um, best practice for those things. So we really, um, of course, my department, speech, language, and hearing is in this college. We have a human development and family studies. They work with children and education and uh, veterans. So we have a really broad college that um, I think it's really fun. I get to learn about really far you know, research that's pretty far from what I do. Um, and it's been really interesting. And then, of course, we have, you know, the usual, we have nursing in our college and health and kinesiology, which does a lot of the um, physical activity and body mechanics and cardiovascular health kinds of issues. So that would be so fascinating. Yay, science. <laughs> yeah. It is really cool. It is really cool. And so many of our faculty are engaged in um, research that's very uh, translatable. And for me, that's really exciting because I can see them changing the way that we um, that we treat patients, that we assess patients. And we have a Department of Public Health and and it's so interesting to see the how the epidemiological perspective interacts with, you know, this kind of more treatment research that we see in some of the other units. It's, it's really interesting. I really like how you're exposed to such a big picture and then all the connections that can be made between them. That's really neat. All right, Jessica. Well, I think it's time for us to begin our wrap up. So if you have any parting thoughts to the listeners or any more uh, little nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to share with us about the speech vibe or anything else that you're involved in in the research in our field, lay it on me. Well, I guess my big wrap up point is if you have a good idea, don't wait for someone else to do it. Yeah. Go do it. Yes. Find an engineer and go do it. That's right. Because we need technologies, we need more innovative solutions, and the people who are best suited to bring our solutions up are us. So speech pathologists know speech pathology best and we should be developing solutions that work, that solve the problems we're actually having. So and that's my big closing point. That's excellent. Now, I will point out just because I love playing devil's advocate is that um, you were in a prime place to make that happen. You're in the university setting, you're doing research, you're getting grants for it. So what about SLPs who are in the field, you know, out at a facility who are mulling these things over and have an idea? Is it just as simple as getting them to connect with people doing research and engineers? <laughs> what would you it could be connecting with someone who's doing research, but it could also be connecting with their local group that um, there might be a women's group for women who, if they're a woman speech pathologist, women who are entrepreneurs, or it could be just a regular entrepreneurs group where you'll meet, you know, people who do finance, people who do engineering, people who do design. So it doesn't have to be at the university setting. I mean, I was very lucky to be here and very lucky to be at the right university, but it could also be finding those groups in the community. We have some groups in Lafayette that are great for starting small businesses in the community. Um, look for a um, 
a um, co-working studio or co-working space where uh, people who are starting businesses or have ideas are, are getting to know each other. Um, it doesn't mean you have to start your own business, but it would at least get you talking to people who do those kinds of things to find partners who might want to help move things forward. Excellent. Solid advice. Thank you. And also don't, they, I think sometimes we think, well, I'm the speech pathologist. I couldn't possibly know about all these things. Remember that you bring the critical expertise. You bring the expertise about the patient and the problem, and that's really important. And it, it makes you invaluable to the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you can source out all those other little things that you're not a hundred percent on. And that's what that networking is about is finding people that that is their thing, learning from them and then growing with that knowledge. So mm -hmm. excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This was so informative. I love it. Thank you for having me. I had a really good time talking to you. Yay! Me too. All right. Oh, and so we get to chat again in a little while when you come back on to talk about assessing um, respiratory function in motor speech disorders. Yep. Yep. And we'll do it all clinically stuff, clinically relevant, all stuff you can do in the clinic without fancy equipment. Oh, you are speaking to my heart right now. I'm so happy. <laughs> yeah. It'll be really fun. Excellent. Thank you so Thanks. much. Okay. I want to thank Jessica for coming on the podcast this week and sharing all about her invention and how she came up with it and the whole process for bringing it to the market. I learned so much and had a great time. Check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com so that you can see um, some of the research that's out there about the speech vibe. I'm excited for next week's episode with Dr. Elena Davis of Howard University on the topic of sports-related concussion management. We cover so much ground during this episode. It's just chock full of applicable and useful information. You can join me this summer on a cruise where I'll be one of three presenters providing 12 hours of CEUs over the course of a seven day cruise around the coast of Alaska. Check out speechtherapypd.com cruise to learn more. Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast and for leaving a review on iTunes. It's really helpful and I appreciate it. I want you guys to get out there, continue to nourish your brain so that your practice can flourish. <laughs>